Welcome to Setsang. Hello, Vishrant. Can you please talk about what are the obstacles to happiness? The problem lies in our programming, really. Uh, none of us were programmed to be happy. I can't recall being programmed to be happy at school, and I cannot recall my parents programming me to be happy either. As a matter of fact, from memory, I was programmed to be an efficient little machine uh, 12 years at school. And so we're not actually programmed to be happy, but what we are programmed to do is to solve problems. We spend all this time at school learning how to solve problems, learning how to repeat answers so we can get a mark, so we can get a diploma or a degree, but that doesn't make us happy. What it does is it sets us up for a life of solving problems. And living in your head, solving problems, is not happiness. Then we go a little bit further and we look at, well, we desire things and we constantly desire things. We want things to be different than how they are. And in this very desiring, we are discontent. And you can't call discontentment happiness. Also, we achieve things, we get things, we own things, and then we get fearful of losing those things. And so our attachment to the things that we have, whether it's our relationships or whether it's material objects, creates suffering for us also because we resist losing them. We, we, we go into resistance and resistance equals suffering. And so we were never, ever programmed to be happy. We were programmed actually to be unhappy, to constantly dissolve what we haven't got. We look at ambition, and in the West, ambition is seen as a wonderful thing. I know for a fact that someone who's ambitious is more dissatisfied with life than anyone else. I don't see that as a a merited thing. I don't see that as a good thing. I see that as detrimental. I mean, don't we go for quality of life? Don't we go for happiness? Yet in our society, we're not programmed for it. We're actually programmed to be discontent through our desires, through our attachments, through our constant problem solving, our living in our heads. And so where in society do they teach you how to be happy? Well, the answer to that is, of course, is satsang. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I was so interested in um, higher consciousness, because it is about happiness. If, if we serve heart, we can be manageably happy. If we find ourselves as beingness, then there's profound contentment for no reason, which is my definition of happiness. But most people pretend to be happy. 
You ask them, how are you? And they'll say, oh, I'm good. Really? Are you? While you're continually desiring things to be different than how they are or to get things you haven't got, while you're terrified of losing what you have, you're telling me you're happy? <laughs> I don't think so. I think you need to get honest with yourself and have a look. But everyone's pretending to be happy because when you say you're happy, people accept you. It's one of the ways we get acceptance. But are you really happy? Are you really, really happy? Or are you actually running a lot of discontent because you want things to be different than how they are? While pretending to be happy. This is one of the things that you get to see when you start witnessing your own mind instead of believing it. When you start witnessing it, you watch what it does. You watch how it behaves. I think all human beings want to be happy. I think all human beings would like to have a lifestyle that they enjoy. But where do we actually get programmed for that to occur? We definitely get programmed to make more money so we can develop a lifestyle that might be better than other people's lifestyles. But does that make us happy? Probably not. Probably not at all because we're still stuck with a mind that's constantly desiring things to be different than how it is. We're still stuck with a mind that's going to get fearful of losing what it has. The only way that I know to get free is to go beyond the mind. That's enlightenment. Up to you. This is your life. Whatever you practice, you're going to get good at. Are there any questions? Any statements? Any challenges to this teaching today? The first question, do you think that spiritual seekers are more likely to be happy? Heck no. <laughs> no, they, they, want, they want to get free. There's another desire, isn't it? They want to get free. They want to raise their consciousness levels, more desires. And the, uh, the more effort you put into any desire, the more dissatisfied you actually are, the more unhappy you are. And the only thing that really works with higher consciousness is a level of totality. So on the way, there's a fair bit of uh, unhappiness. What I found in the seeking of higher consciousness that in service of heart, we can find what I call manageable happiness. Because when I was helping people in whatever way I was helping them, it made me feel good. I, I felt good helping people. But it was conditional on me helping people. When Awareness became aware of itself. There was profound contentment for no reason at all. That's different. It wasn't conditional. Awareness was aware of itself and there was profound contentment. In other words, happiness. 
next, Stephen would like to ask a question. Hello, Stephen. Yes, hi, good morning. Thank yes. you. I'm not sure how to phrase this as a question, so I'll make a statement and perhaps you can help me to unravel it. Yes, a lot of what you've said resonates with me because I tend to want to be honest with people when they ask me how I am. And when I tell them, mm, I'm not sure, mm, today I'm feeling rather discontent, they're not sure how to respond to that. <laughs> it makes it a bit difficult to have normal social engagement sometimes. I guess I just wanted to say that, yes, it's, it's my experience too. Discontent and resistance seem to have been a common theme. And the resistance in particular from my recent learnings is something I'm finding very difficult to take care of. And perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about overcoming resistance and discontent, if you're able, please. Well, I have a problem sharing my condition with people too, because people ask me how I am. And uh, I have two answers. One is I'm always the same, because I am. And the other is I'm lovely, because that's how I feel. <laughs> and people have trouble handling that. <laughs> <laughs> But what I learned, and I learned this a long time ago, is that acceptance takes away most of our suffering. Because acceptance is non-resistance. When we are in resistance, we're usually in non-acceptance of what is in some way. And so it's not something we were ever taught to practice, but acceptance can give us quite a nice life if we accept things as they are, rather than our, our preferences. Mm. And so I, I started practicing acceptance oh, 40 years ago because it works. As a matter of fact, if you accept something, there's no story anymore, it's over. Mm. And that's the, that's the indication that the acceptance has been total. But I wasn't taught that at school either, <laughs> all by my parents. That was something I picked up from Eastern teachers, Osho Rajneesh and a few others. This is what they teach because acceptance leads us to uh, be able to surrender unconditionally. And so the more, the more resistance we put into anything, in other words, the more non-acceptance we put into anything, the more we suffer. But we're doing it to ourselves. It's not like someone else is doing it to us, Stephen. We do it to ourselves. Mm. And that's a big realisation in itself, that it's not the world that hurts us, it's us that hurts us with the way we think about the world, with our reactions to the world. Mm. That realisation enough isn't enough to change us. We have to change our patterning because we've all been patterned to resist. We're a warrior breed. We resist, 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 suffer, 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 and then share our suffering with the people we love. But we can program ourselves to start accepting life instead of resisting life through repetition, not through understanding, because understanding doesn't work, through repetition, practicing acceptance instead of practicing resistance.
I wish there was an easy way. I wish there was, but there's not. Practice is the only way that we can change the default patterns of our mind. Mm. 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 <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Appreciate that. So, so Stephen, do me a big favor and practice some acceptance and see where. <laughs> Yeah. As in right now. <laughs> As in right now. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for that. Thank you, Stephen. The next question is from Susha. Hi, Vishrant. Hello, Susha. So, Vishrant, you said that. Those of us who have glimpses of the truth feel more dissatisfied. <laughs> and I do, and I yes. agree to that. <laughs> and especially when the ego-based reality hits, it's, a, it's, it's like going from heaven to hell or yep. going from the sky to the underworld or something like that. Yes, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> And I wonder, is manageable happiness is what one should look for in that time? What, what, what is the path? How, when you had Satori's and you didn't, were not awakened and you went for manageable happiness, it wasn't really happiness, right? You're still yearning for something else. No, it was happiness. I got a great deal of joy out of being in service to other human beings. I, I went back to school and trained as a naturopath and psychotherapist so I could have tools to help other people with. And I found that when I was helping people, I was happy. And so I spent um, the 10 years or 11, 10 years before awakening helping people because I loved it. I loved helping people. It just made me feel good. Um, I wasn't doing it to make myself feel good. That was just a byproduct of being in service to humans um, and plants and animals and whatever else I could find. I'd lived 33 years or 34 years of my life as a selfish human being, being very successful at that. But it was so hollow. It was so empty. It was so loveless. And when I started moving and opening my heart, moving towards service, it all changed. It was like, from my perspective, I didn't start living until I was 34 because that's when my heart started opening and that's when I started being in service of other human beings. And that was wonderful. And at 45, I woke up. So what does a seeker do with this dissatisfaction that you talked about? From my perspective, the totality uh, that's required to change patterns in itself is causes dissatisfaction, but it's worthwhile. If we don't change the patterns of our mind, they just run rampant, they just run the same. And so I, from being a selfish human being, just serving myself, I changed to a human being that served others. And I loved it. I, lo I loved helping people. It made my whole life richer and better and more happy. 
But of course, there was still the dissatisfaction somewhere that I wasn't awake because I'd had satori's and I knew what awake was. And of course, there was the other patterns that come in, the other desires that come in. But because I was conscious enough, I could see them and I wasn't giving them much credence. I was just talking to Stephen about acceptance. Well, I practiced acceptance. I accepted life as it was. I accepted what I had. I accepted what I got. When things went bad, I accepted that. When they went good, I accepted that with the same amount of um, passion. Acceptance is the key. It teaches us unconditional surrender, which prepares us for enlightenment. So you're saying you're dissatisfied with whatever it is accepted. I'm saying that, yes. <laughs> I don't see the mind as the enemy. It's not the enemy. It just does what it does. It just can be reprogrammed. You don't have to fight it. You just have to reprogram some of the things in it that are in the way of uh, being successful at higher consciousness, being successful at happiness. Any belief system that creates misery in you through victim-orientated thinking is in the way. It's worth challenging. It's worth putting doubt into. Yes. And there are some that don't even show up. Like they're not visible as belief systems and never sure what it is that where the resistance comes from. At least I have a hard time. Sometimes I can't see them until much later. Yeah, you've got to keep watching. For a lot of years, I used the outward breath to let go. You know, I'd find myself a little uptight and I'd just allow myself to die on the outward breath. And in that, I got to see the things that were creating the tension in me, creating the contractions and the resistance. But it was a slow process. I do not think higher consciousness for anyone is a quick process. A lot of people make the huge mistake of collecting knowledge and thinking somehow that raises your consciousness levels. It not only doesn't raise your consciousness levels, it doesn't heal any wounds of your heart either. It's a booby prize. What works is practicing something different than what you've done before. That's what works. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Susha. The next question has been written by a viewer. Acceptance leads to surrender. Where to draw the line of acceptability so that you don't end up being a doormat? Okay. And so you're being obnoxious. I accept you're being obnoxious. Totally. And I walk away. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> and that walking away is not from a place of closure or a place of defendedness. It's just what I do. And I do it from a place of accepting you as you are and accepting me as I am. People think that if we move to acceptance, we become impotent. I don't agree. We can do everything from acceptance. 
Acceptance equals openness, and openness is so cool. The next question is from Abai. Before we go there, hi Abai. Uh, I can accept any, everything and still say no from a place of acceptance. Try it and see. You'll know if you're actually doing it correctly if you're wide open while you're doing it. Hi Abai. Hi Vishrant. Hello. Uh, Vishrant, uh, in your satsang, I feel happy. There is happiness, there is self-acceptance, and even acceptance towards people or my situation in life. But it starts fading after the satsang. So how can I be with you even after satsang? Traditionally, satsang is held in the morning and in the evening, seven days a week, so 14 times a week. So people who are seekers can come and rest in the energy field, use the clarity of satsang to see through their minds and remove obstacles, and also ultimately use the Buddha field or the energy field of satsang to wake up in. And so from my perspective, it is the freeway or the fastest way to be in satsang. But as you go away from it, you go back to your mind, you go back to the way you were before, try remembering what's been taught. See, Osho taught meditation. He taught watching the mind. And he taught self-inquiry. And this is what I practiced. He taught openness. This is what I practiced. And for me, I made it a game. And so if I found myself closed, the game was, how fast can I open? If I found myself not present to a reality stuck in my head, how fast can I get back to reality? I made the whole higher consciousness thing or trip a game, including self-inquiry. I just self-inquired to see what I'd find. And I just kept doing it until I found beingness. So a game. So meditation was a game. Self-inquiry was a game. Openness was a game. I called that game the game of zero. Zero being when I'm absolutely at peace and anything above that, not at peace. And so if I found myself above, how fast could I get back to peace? How fast could I go down back to zero again? And I called this the game of zero. And I played it for 10 years. I loved it because people come along, they do things, they upset you because you have belief systems they shouldn't do things. How fast can you get back to zero after you've been upset? And can you undo the belief systems that supported the contraction and resistance in the first place? It's just a game. It doesn't have to be hard work. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, because I generally get caught up there and... Uh, I take a long, long time to come back to the reality. But I think, like you said, if I make it a game, the approach is very different and even that acceptance can come in. Yeah, but you, and you'll fail. We all fail. That's how we learn. We don't, we don't really learn so much from our successes as we do from our failures. 
It's how we learn to walk by falling over and getting up again. And it's okay to fail. Just never give up. Treat it as a game that you like playing. Yeah. I played the game of openness for a long time. It's a beautiful game because it ends up you being wide open. Yes, I will do that. Thank you very much, Ishrant. Thank you, Abby. The following question has been written by Sita. Hi, Vishrant. Why is it you love dogs so much? It's easy. It's easier to love dogs than it is to love human beings. Actually, I'll put that a different way. It's easier to like dogs than it is to like human beings. I can't help but love human beings. I love everyone I meet, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's easier to like dogs because dogs are so friendly. They're so forgiving. They, they just want to be your friend. They're wonderful. They're open. They say hello. Human beings are not so friendly. So I love dogs. And dogs love you back. They can be your best friend. Yeah, I love dogs and I love humans. And I love cats and I love birds and I love plants and I love trees and I love the rocks. I love the sky. I love. But there's some things that I don't like. That doesn't mean I don't love them. I just don't like them. <laughs> Certain behaviors, particularly human behaviors, are some that are pretty abhorrent, but that's what is. It, I accept it, don't like it, but I love the person. Next, Sarah has a question. Hello, Sarah. Good morning, Vish. Um, I'm experiencing a lot of fear around being fully seen and being vulnerable and, and with that, uh, uh, somewhat of an intensification of uh, self-sabotage. Yeah, in what way? How are you self-sabotaging, Sarah? Um, slipping into selfish thoughts about what I want, which ultimately is is more of a a, a blanket of protection uh, to avoid really looking deep within myself and and exposing everything yeah i guess look i've been at the game for a long time i started when i was 19 this um exposing yourself uh, you don't have to all you got to do is surrender you don't have to really publicly expose yourself. You, you can surrender. But that takes a, a fair bit of practice too. 
I surrendered to God. I gave my life to God or truth, whatever you want to call it. I don't think anyone knew but me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, wasn't, there was no exposure to other humans in it in a lot of ways. I just gave myself my totality to God or truth. And in that, my whole life changed. I'd seen enough of what it was like to live selfishly and the rewards of that, which aren't that pleasant. I, I actually didn't think it was worth living any other way except in service. But that was probably because I'd been around the block a lot of times. I'd been <clears throat> beaten up by existence a lot of times. <laughs> I, I'd had a lot of tragedy in my life. And I could see that life was suffering, that life was um, just a, we lose everything. You know, we lose everything. It's just how it is. And for me, I didn't want to be selfish anymore. I wanted to find my heart. And in finding my heart, I wanted to be in service to everything besides me. Whether it, whether it was the, the earth or the trees or the plants or the animals, the birds, the fish, human beings, it didn't make much difference. It's just that it was a way of life. The way of the heart is a way of life. It's the way of taking care. And if we really, really look at what it means to be a man or a woman that's mature, we're caretakers here. We are here to take care. And this is a mature role. Unfortunately, we haven't all been taught that. I definitely wasn't taught that. I had to come to that through meditation. Uh, I grew up in a, in a situation where I was, it was a very competitive school I went to. I was taught to be ambitious and I was ambitious and I was successful. I managed to beat a lot of people. How ugly is that? You know, that's, that's what I was taught. It took me a long time to realize how ugly that was, that selfishness is not pretty, that it's not the way of the heart, it's the opposite. And so this fear of exposure, nobody cares anyway. Everyone's thinking about themselves. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to think, I, and I have for a long, long time, that I'm God's fool. And uh, it's okay. Whatever people think of me, or that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> Life is a play. And we can, hear, we can play and play and play. The moment you move into the, mo the moment, the moment you move into the present moment, you start playing because you've moved out of the dream and into reality. And it's only in the dream that you're worried about what other people think of you anyway. Mm. In reality, we just play. <laughs> Osho talked about Zorba the Buddha. Well, being in the moment, being in the moment, being in the present moment with reality, that's Zorba. And awareness knowing itself, that's the Buddha. And they are both worthy. They're both worthy to go for us as human beings, both Zorba and the Buddha. They're good pursuits. 
can't afford to serve fear, it'll keep you crippled. Mm. You've got to be brave, Sarah, brave. <laughs> it's coming. It's, uh, the uh, ego, every time I feel like that, feel myself rising, it's like the ego senses it and comes in with some kind of vengeance and uh yeah recently i haven't been uh very good at bringing myself back it's um it's quite strong well your your, your ego and your mind are just a survival mechanism that's all they are really you take away the personal and they're just a survival mechanism but because of your intelligence you can learn acceptance and surrender mm. you can learn to be free but really, when you look at the mind, that's all it is. It's just trying to survive. When you, when you decided to uh, give yourself to God, did you, did you feel there was an intensification of ego that uh, really won? No, it was, for me, it was uh, when I decided to give myself to God, it was like a death. It was like the thing that wanted to be someone died. It was a dropping. There was a big dropping. And there was a, instead of a big somebody here, there was, it was diminished. It was like I found humility and it was beautiful. Humility is an absence of the eye, basically. And it was beautiful. And then I walked through the world, still ego-based, but basically as a no one going nowhere, because that's what we all are. We have this idea that we're somebody's. We have this idea that there's somewhere to go. There's nowhere to go, we're already here. <laughs> and as far as being a somebody, well, that's just made up. <laughs> we really just, nobody's going nowhere. And what other people think of you, well, that's their business. Don't worry about what other people think. They're all crazy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if you've watched your own mind long enough, you realize that everybody's crazy. Everybody yeah, that's yeah. ego-based is pretending to be something they're not to start with. Yeah. <laughs> seems easy to forget that at times. Sorry, what was that? It seems easy to forget that at times. Oh, as soon as we go into any form of dream, uh, we forget. We forget everything. And so projections forward like worry, procrastination, they these are just dreams. Remembering the past is another dream. As soon as we go into a dream, we're lost. That's why it's really important to try to stay as present to reality as you can. So how present can you stay for how long, I wonder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. I have uh, one other quick question. Uh, sometimes in, in stillness, in, in meditation, I feel uh, an energetic pull with my head. More times than not, it, it, it pulls to the right, occasionally to the left. I'm just wondering if you knew what that was. It's quite strong to the point where my chin is almost parallel with my shoulder. So my approach to that would be to accept it and just let it be. 
I, I, I gave up fighting, I gave up resisting, I gave up even understanding. I just accepted whatever was. And in that acceptance, I found profound peace. People don't accept because they think it makes them impotent. That's the, that, but that's not true. I still managed to uh, support two families. I still managed to run uh, my naturopathy and my psychotherapy business. I still managed to help people. And I was practicing acceptance. You can do it. <laughs> it's up to you. It's just so foreign to us to practice acceptance. We, we practice righteousness and arrogance. That's what we're good at. All human beings are good at that while pretending not to be. But when you, when you start serving heart, when you start looking for ways to help other human beings, to help animals, to help the planet, when you look at other, when, and you start doing it, it changes your whole life because now you're caring. And this is a beautiful way to live. So drop the curious nature and... Oh, curiosity has brought you to where you are. Curiosity is part of being a seeker, wanting to know the meaning of it all. What's the meaning of life? Who am I really? This curiosity is a healthy curiosity and without it, no one would wake up. I'm not saying you don't keep going for higher consciousness. I'm saying that you practice acceptance because really unconditional surrender, which is gained through the practice of acceptance, is the key to enlightenment. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sarah. The next question has been written by Depeche. Is practicing acceptance done through the mind or how does acceptance work correctly? Yeah, acceptance is done through the mind. Absolutely. And so is non-acceptance. Our resistance is done through the mind as well. Without a mind, there would be no resistance. Uh, without a mind, there'd be no acceptance. Mind you, acceptance doesn't really have much of a look. It's more of a non-doing whereas resistance has a look because it's a doing. But it's all mind. You're, you can support uh, acceptance or you can support resistance. Your choice. If I was you, I wouldn't support resistance because resistance equals suffering. The next question is from Kalimba. Michael Limba, hello. <laughs> um, I had trouble getting out of bed this morning, but fortunately, when I was being lazy, the lawn mowing people came and they were doing the lawns all around the place, so I got up, which is what I'm pleased about. But a few things you've said today resonate with me, and I wanted to make a couple of statements and ask a question. First one is puppies. Oh, absolutely. I'm on the same page with you. When I go walking on the beach, I always go up to puppy. I always ask the owners first, go up and have a little chat and a pat. And, but occasionally, like yesterday, there was one that for some reason was just. And it was like, there's 
I hadn't done anything or not. The owners would say, oh, I'm sorry, he's a bit grumpy like that. But also babies, you're probably the same. If I walk down the path and there's somebody coming towards me with a, a pram or a baby in their arms, it's just, oh, I just go so gooey because they're so lovely. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you share that with babies as well? I guess you would. I don't do it so much with babies because people kind of uh, can take offence to you <laughs> being too personal with their babies, but I definitely do it with puppies. I say hello to all the dogs that I come across because I love dogs. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm a little bit more uh, cautious with um, babies because p parents can get offended. Yeah. So when they're not looking quite often, I'll wave. <laughs> that's funny. I've, I've never experienced that. I was I, nearly always the parents go, oh, that's lovely, you know. And sometimes if a baby's crying, you know, I'll go up and say hello. And the baby will turn around and and sort of it'll stop crying and the owners will go, thank you. We're not the owners, parents. Look, it's just protocols. I'll try yeah. that next time. <laughs> we'll see how we go. Yeah. Um, talking about how you, how you feel by doing things that you're giving with. Like I, because of my bipolar, I have a bit of mood swings and I've been having a few more lately than normal. But I do meals on wheels deliveries a couple of days a week. And no matter how I feel at the beginning of the day, when I finish my Meals on Wheels, I feel so much better because the people are so happy to sort of see you and have a little bit of interaction. And it's just such a such a lovely thing to do. And it's I get more out of it than I put into it, if you know what I mean. I do. Yeah, good for you. Good for you, Kalimba. Mm. Now, the other two little things, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I play in the local bridge club and we've got a couple there we play a silly game with with, with uh, scratchies, um, we do it in reverse. If we beat them, then we have to buy the scratchies. And the other day I bought one and thought about, put it up and I looked at it and it was like, the first prizes were three brand new Mercedes Benz. And I just had this weird panic attack. If I'd won them, I wouldn't be able to drive one. I'd feel so embarrassed going anywhere in a brand new Mercedes. I thought, oh, God, I hope we don't get it, which we didn't, fortunately. But can uh, you comment on that? What, what, what's that about? I would not be able to go downtown driving a brand new Mercedes Benz. You're concerned about what other people think of you? Well, most of the time I'm, I'm really not, but it was like I just feel so embarrassed about it. Like, Ugh. Yeah, because you're concerned about what other people think of you. Okay. And so you'd need to have a look at, well, what does it mean in, in other people's minds to see you driving a brand new expensive vehicle? What does that mean? How does that affect the image you think you should have or they should have of you? Yeah, I, I guess to some extent, I'm just like, I'm happy with what I have. And I've got a little old Hyundai Getz, which... I think it's about a, I don't know, 2015 model or something like that. And I'm perfectly happy with that. I love the little thing, the little yellow peril, we call it. <laughs> but, you know, in witnessing your mind, you might see something else going yeah. on there. And that's the thing. It's like witnessing the mind shows you all these different things that you may or may not like. But if you have a problem driving around the street in a brand new Mercedes, I wonder what's really going on back there. 
And it, you just, just out of curiosity, have a look and see. Yeah. By the way, if you win three uh, Mercedes-Benz, brand new Mercedes-Benz, latest model, I'll have all three. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one last tiny little statement. I get a laugh when you, when you talk to Abay. Like sometimes you pronounce it Abay. And then you sometimes you're cheeky and you call her Abby. <laughs> I do. I do. You're right. Uh, before, before awakening, I had a sixth sense of humor. And after awakening, sixth sense of humor. Before awakening, chopping wood and carrying water. After awakening, funny sense of humor. What can I say? I think See, you and I. The thing is, you know, you wake up, you have no fear of anything. You have no interest in what people think of you. They think bad things about you, good for them. They think good things about you, good for them. Enlightenment is the ultimate freedom from everything. You just don't care because you, it just doesn't matter anymore. You can have three brand new Rolls Royces or 93, as I think Osho had, and drive a different one every day. And it just doesn't matter <laughs> because nothing matters. True. <laughs> All right, Bertrand, thank you so much. Yeah, keep doing the scratches, mate. I'll be waiting for the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I want to make amends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice talking to you, Kalimba. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. The next question has been written by a viewer. When everything is accepted, and in this process, ultimately no one is left, is that why surrender is called a non-doing? It's called a non-doing because it is a non-doing. Our best example of that is something, someone throws something in you, at you and you don't move. You don't contract, you don't resist, nothing moves. Someone abuses you, you don't move, nothing moves. You may respond, but nothing moves inside. This is surrender. It's a non-doing. We are programmed to constantly react, but we can teach ourselves surrender, which is non-doing. And that is how we develop an equanimous mind, a mind that will support enlightenment through the practice of acceptance, through the practice of let go. And of course, that's what you have to practice. And it's good to practice. It's fun to practice. Uh, people look at spiritual practices as, as arduous. I, I never did. They were fun. I practiced let go. I practiced acceptance. I practiced meditation. I practiced self-inquiry, I practiced openness, and they're all fun. Because they're all games. So, so many times people practice the game of suffering. That's not one of the games I'd like to practice. Mm -hmm. The next question is from Sai. Well, I thought you would have asked me, uh, Tosh, how do we practice uh, not suffering? 
And I would have had to say to you, well, stop resisting, Tosh. Okay, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, Vishran. Isn't it odd, Cy, that Tosh doesn't ask me the right questions? I have to ask myself and answer them. Oh, oh it'd be a lot easier if you just came up with the right question to start with. It's <laughs> a <laughs> good thing you accept everything as it is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I was listening to you speak with Abby a little bit earlier in the webinar, and you were talking about practicing the game of zero. Yeah. And, um, and just noticing the contractions and, and letting them go, noticing the contractions and letting them go. And um, the thing that occurred to me is sometimes I just find myself like I won't be triggered by anything in particular, but I'll notice, I guess, like a closure or um, maybe just a discomfort inside myself. And, and there's like that, I guess I, I sort of feel like I, sh I should go like get underneath that or, or be as a more peaceful place. Yeah, find like more peace below that. But I know you've also talked about avoidance of of what is and, and like avoiding wounding and things like that. And I'm wondering if you see a difference between like practicing the game of zero when there's like obvious things that get triggered and inside you and, and or did you even practice the game of zero when you notice subtle things even in, in sort of quiet space in your own time? I practiced zero all the time. Um, it was a great game. You're scraping your microphone on something, Sorry. Sorry. It's making a noise through the um, speakers. I was fascinated by the game of zero. I was fascinated by how cool and calm I could become even while under fire if I just kept removing belief systems that caused contraction in me. I was just fascinated by the whole process. I was fascinated by the fact that I did not have to create suffering in myself through resistance. It fascinated me. It gave me a whole other view of the material world, of how all of these people who are suffering are creating it for themselves, and that there is no need to do so. We can learn to let go. We can learn to accept, and we can walk through the world as nobodies, rather than pretending to be somebodies. Yeah, I... That, that I've... That I've sort of seen to some degree, I guess. It's, um, yeah, it's like, it's, it's like just, uh, not wanting, not wanting to avoid, like wanting to know. You've lost it, Sai. Tosh. The next question has been written by a viewer. Hello, Vishrant. Osho said that we are hypnotized and believe in this false illusion of I. Is dehypnotizing possible so that this false sense of self drops? No, 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 no. After Satori, after the first major Satori's, it was clear to me that the I wasn't real and that it was just a fabrication. 
but it was still there. It wasn't until awareness locked onto itself in enlightenment that the eye dropped. And then there was a sense there was nobody here, nobody talking, nobody doing anything. But up until that, there was an understanding that there was nobody, but there was still a somebody. The eye is um, the identified part of the mind, and it's a part of the survival mechanism. And it does drop, but on enlightenment, you can diminish it um, through um, putting yourself aside, through being in service to others. You can diminish it, there's no doubt about that, but it doesn't drop until awakening occurs, in my experience. The next question is from Brian, who has written an email to you. Hi, Vishrant. I'm a college student in the United States, and I would love to come meet you. Currently, I'm conflicted because I'm trying to just focus on raising my consciousness and dropping all my belief systems. My parents really want me to focus on looking for a job in the business world, because that's what people in society do. I'm having a hard time expressing that I'm not interested in blindly following what society does and staying in lower consciousness. My parents are extremely supportive and are just concerned that I won't have a job and won't be able to support myself. I acknowledge this, but I know my priority is dropping all these belief systems that have been programmed in my mind over the past 21 years. Can you give me any advice on this topic? Thank you, Brian. Brian, I love the way you think because unlike you, I continued on after school and became quite successful, retiring at the age of 28 because I was so ambitious. And I wasted at least 33 years of my life in the pursuit of success. You're lucky because you're a lot younger. Go for truth. Go for higher consciousness. Existence will find a way to take care of you. Don't waste a moment. I got to the top of the heap. I got to the top in business. I got to retire with the yachts and the Rolls Royces and the penthouses. I gave it all away. It's not worth anything. Higher consciousness, heart, that's worth something. Nothing else is. If you haven't got heart, you're broke. That's what I realized at the age of 33. I was broke. I had heaps of money and I had heaps of properties, but I was broke because I didn't have any heart. Go for heart. Put heart first, always. Put higher consciousness first, always. Do not hesitate. Do not wait. You may not have a later. We don't know. We project that we're going to have a later. We don't know. We have now. This is real. This is the only time that's real. Go for truth. Go for heart. I'm glad your parents are supporting you. That's awesome. <laughs> you won't be able to meet me for a while because of COVID. It's how it is. But I'm online a lot. Nine times a week, actually. You have a talk to Tosh. See what we can arrange if you want to attend more satsangs. 
Thank you for satsang. Good to see your brave hearts here today. <laughs>